Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. excited to be launching um, Suncoast Ministry College next year. So if you're at all interested in that, we have an interest night in two Monday nights time and uh, would love, love you to be there. If you're interested, got any questions about that, maybe you're finishing school soon or you've got a kid that's uh, kind of going, what do I do with my life? Or maybe you're there going, I just want to do something great and extraordinary with my life. It's going to be so cool. And I promise you, you will come out with more qualifications than Dr. Russ has. So, so don't sweat. You'll be, you'll be absolutely fine. I'm really excited tonight to finish off our series, Mind Games. And uh, you know, this is week number four. So if you're just joining us here for the first time at Suncoast Church, I'm stoked you're here. And if this series at all kind of tonight just kind of touches a nerve with you, more than welcome to jump on our app or our website and have a listen to any of the previous messages in the series. Who's got something out of this series? It's been helpful somewhat to people. I'm really happy to hear that. So I'm pumped to kind of to, to bring it to a landing uh, tonight. Uh, several decades ago, there was a Dutch scientist who invented a way to um, preserve uh, hu- the human body after, after the, uh, the human body had died. And so a bit different to taxidermy where you'd see it often with animals and you kind of got the living, you know, that looks like they're still alive. This is a bit different. And the idea he wanted to do was he wanted to preserve the human body in order to display what the body looks like without skin on, but still to look like it's alive and functioning and, and, and you, know, you know, doing things. So he began to find a way to preserve the human body without skin. And then he would set it up in like a fixed position doing some kind of activity like dancing or running or playing basketball or playing chess, something of that sort. And, uh, and all different people, young people, old people, people who are pregnant. Like now I'm intentionally not going to show any pictures tonight because it's a, uh, it, yeah, it's a Sunday night. It's probably a bit too graphic. And, but you're more than welcome to, um, to, you know, I'm sure some of you already Googling what that looks like. But so to give you an idea, it's, it's, a, it's a museum or a, a museum show. It kind of travels around the world called Body Worlds, Body Worlds. And so for several decades now, now it's been happening. And that's the name of the, uh, the scientist who originated behind it. And so every time we travel around the world in different places, it would get a whole lot of... Um, Backlash, people saying, I don't know if this is right to do, because it's quite graphic. And, uh, you know, and, but needless to say, it's, it's quite a fascinating approach to experiencing the human body. And the motivation behind it was the thought around wanting to kind of break down the mystery of the human being that we're not these mysterious figures that we are merely just flesh and bones and tendons and muscles and cartilage and veins and sinews and all these things. But there isn't anything mysterious about us. And this stems from a scientific uh, observation known as reductionism reductionism. And so people who adhere to this kind of uh, scientific approach known as reductionist. And it's a very simple thought and it's kind of, it's represented in the name whereby if you would reduce things down, as the word reductionist would suggest, if you'd reduce things down to their smallest possible particles, you'll easily be able to understand how things work. All you need to do is break things down, break things down, break things down. This is the idea of reductionism. And so this museum was started with the idea of if you can just kind of strip away kind of the, you know, the skin from the human body, then we'd be able to reduce the human being down to its simplest form. Ultimately, reductionism is the idea that we are nothing more than the sum of our parts, that the human experience and the human life and, and who we are as human beings, what we are is simply you reduced us down to our most, you know, 
bone and muscles and tendons, and we are, we are just the sum of our parts. Now, I know this is exactly what you came to church on a Sunday night to listen to, is the idea about breaking down the human body. But before you wonder, what does this at all have to do with mind games? I want you to, to, to travel with me in your minds just for a second, okay, to the idea of how reductionism and, and, and trying to calculate meaning in life from simply the sum of our parts doesn't make sense. Ever. For example, I don't know if you are the lead, if you're married here, if, you, if, if you're in your, if you, whoever you live with, um, if you're the cook or you're the chef in your home, you're someone, maybe you're the dish pig or you're someone who has to like kind of do the food prep. I don't know where you are in the family hierarchy at your home, but, um, but when it's my, I'm definitely, I definitely do what I'm told to do in the kitchen. Okay. So Chloe is the master chef. Chloe is an absolute genius and very, very creative. For me, just give me the recipe, give me the ingredients and I will follow the ingredients to the nth degree. Agree. And like, it could be like three liters of olive oil. That's the recipe. So that's a lot of olive oil now. I think about it. But, but even if it's like one meal over, I'm like, no, no, no. Like that's gone. It's gone too far. So I will try and follow it. For me, cooking is the sum of its parts, right? you got exactly the right amount of ingredients. So I would do that. And my meals never, ever, ever turn out like Chloe's do. I tried to make um, chop suey this week. Once again, sounds awesome. Followed it all. And it was just well, I didn't think it was extraordinary. And Chloe confirmed that she tasted it. Went, yep, this is real bland. And I was like, ah. So then she goes over and she's like, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of creative. And then boom, it is amazing. And I was like, cooking is not simply the sum of its parts. There is some fairy dust in there somewhere, right? So I can't even, and if you've ever tried to put together Ikea furniture, you will know that even trying to put together some Ikea furniture is not simply as easy as the sum of its parts. Anyone love Ikea, putting Ikea furniture together? God bless you guys. You're amazing. Okay, so, sorry? Yeah, yeah, actually, that's good. I am going to get your number. Hey, no, I can put together Ikea furniture. Well, I just realized what you were saying. There you go. You are more than welcome next time we get to my Ikea furniture, sweetheart, if you would like to do it, and I will cook dinner. Chop suey. Okay, so, um, so, and if you don't believe me, I don't know if anyone here is a fan of McDonald's, like the food. Okay, have you ever tried to blend a Happy Meal together? You will quickly realize that McDonald's, what makes it delicious is not the sum of its parts. Because if you put the sum of its parts all together, it tastes absolutely disgusting. And that I learned the hard way when I was in a youth group and played a non-savory game in my teenage years. Anyway, so the, point, the point of this is um, when it comes to the... Ultimately, the, the, the big questions of meaning and why we're here, and obviously in this series, we've been wrestling with you know, the big question. We've been wrestling with the idea of um, you know, where, where does our thoughts and our thinking and our minds work in correlation with faith and trust in God, and how, how do these two ideas work together? And because and often there can be this wrong idea, and we've been exploring this through the series, that to somehow believe in God or to put, to put your trust in Jesus Christ and follow Him, you, you kind of got to check your brain at the door. And maybe that's been your experience. And maybe if you're new here to church, you're, kind of, you're not kind of really bored into the whole God thing yet. Maybe that's what you've been led to believe is that for me to kind of buy into this stuff, I've got to you know, not use my brain. But right from the beginning, when Jesus was on earth, he taught a different way. And he recognized that like the, the mind, the human intellect, our logic works actually hand in hand with faith in God. That you don't have to pick one or the other. They aren't at enmity with one another. They're not at war with one another. You need both. It's trying to like, if you just go one, it's like trying to clap with one hand, right? It's useless. It just looks weird. But together, right? It makes, it makes it significant. And so we've been looking at how this works. And so when it then comes to the big questions of, of why we're here, the reductionist approach, breaking things down to the sum of their parts, Whilst it does a great job in explaining how things work, 
it, it falls mega short in explaining why things work or why things are even there in the first place. A reductionist approach, breaking things down to the sum of their parts, doesn't deal with the deeper longings and drives and desires of the human experience. Let me put it to you this way. It is not difficult for a scientist, or let alone you and I, to get our head around where greed comes from, where lust comes from, where violence comes from, because these are kind of just natural extreme extensions of our normal human biological urges and desires. And when unrestrained, they result in catastrophic effects, right? You don't need to really sit down and study too much to understand when we get to the worst of humanity, it's just a mega extreme extent of something that's in all of us. We all experience anger. We can all experience lust. We can all experience greed. But unbridled, it leads to somewhere unhealthy and often harmful. Okay, so, so, so it's not difficult to get ahead around where that comes from. It's simply part of who we are, that you know, we, we have these urges of violence, all these things that come from our biological makeup. But what is confusing and what reductionism can never do is to explain such human phenomena as kindness or sacrifice or patience or courage, generosity, bravery, selflessness. Reducing these ideas down to the sum of their parts, we don't understand how they work, and they beg another question. Why? Why do we do these things? And it's these massive questions that, well before our time, humans have wrestled with, the deeper, big, meaningful questions of life. Why are we here? Why do we value the things that we value? Why are we supposed to live a certain way? And so for all of human history... Um, cultures and nations, religions have been doing their best to try and understand the big questions of life. And I mean, like the big ones, right? The, the huge questions. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Does my life have any meaning? And so, so all ancient cultures and, the, and all the recorded history of man, that this has been often the nature of, 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 of how we try to deal with these questions. And so more often than not, all of our ancient cultures, in fact, pretty much all cultures on the planet, except for the modern West, have turned to spirituality and have turned to religion and some kind of faith to help find meaning. Do they recognize not all of life can be explained by the sum of its parts? There is too much. Our lives are made up of too much. There's too much complicated realities that you and I navigate through. Take love, for instance. How can you break that down to the sum of its parts? Scientists will say love is nothing but a rush of blood to the head. But you and I know, quite frankly, a rush of blood to the head does not explain all the crazy things that we often do for those that we love. And so as, as, as many faith and cultures and all through history have, have searched for these the massive meaning in life, probably the, one of, or if not the oldest continual uh, religion and spiritual practice and culture that we have a recorded history of on the planet is the Jewish faith and the Jewish culture. And uh, thousands of years before Christ, obviously, this we had Abraham who kind of birthed the Jewish, Jewish faith. And from there, there's been some incredible historical figures. And so one of the most prominent historical figures is a guy named King David. And he penned down a whole lot of songs and poetry that we have in what we call our Old Testament, which is involved in the Jewish scriptures um, before Christ. And in the book of Psalms, there's a heap of literature and poems and songs that King David wrote. And one of them, Psalm 8, he wrestles with these big questions, the big questions of why I'm here, the purpose of life, like those, those big questions that we wrestle with in life. And here's what King David wrote. And this is one particular song or poem that he wrote, Psalm chapter 8. He writes this, when I consider, when I ponder, pontificate, when I consider the heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Now, this, is, this is remarkable he even comes to this conclusion. 
Because he was saying, when I've considered the big pictures, the big questions of life, the universe, the moon, all the planets that spin in orbit, and then I look down on this little, because I know back you know, 3,000 years ago, they definitely had ability to look down on the earth, and they knew it was a, a big globe that was blue. Totally knew that. But he goes, when I consider the enormity of the human experience, but then even down to its mo- most minute details, like atoms and bacteria, molecules, like the enormity of all this, when I consider it all, His thoughts led him down an amazing path where he drew the conclusion. In all of this, my mind is blown first and foremost that you are mindful of me and that the Creator cares for people. And when you and I wrestle with the big questions in life, and and maybe they're not the questions that we wake up every day wrestling with, you lay there going, you know, why am I here? Maybe you can relate more to the young lady who was on Dr. Russ's interview couch just there before going, I don't know why I'm here. I'm just, don't know, right? Maybe it's you. But every now and again, right, we maybe you do wrestle with those bigger questions. And I think it's important. It's healthy. Maybe there's a certain life event that has triggered you wrestling with some of life's really big and really deep questions. Maybe you've lost something that dear to you. Maybe you've lost someone dear to you. Maybe you've lost your job and, and whatever it might be. And, and it's caused you to stop back. Or maybe you had a positive life experience. A child got married or one of your children had a child or you had a child for the first time, whatever it might be. And something has caused you to pause and to consider, as David considered, life and to consider meaning and why we're here. And there are two massive lines of thought that often extend when we stop to pause about and consider the meaning of life. And one is easy to lead us down a path where we can conclude that, well, there is none and I'm not cared for, and I'm just one face in a sea of eight billion people, let alone the myriads of people who live before me, and I'm just this tiny speck on this tiny rock in the middle of this tiny galaxy in the middle of a massive universe that not even our science can tell us how big it is, and it's still expanding. Like, and if your brain and your thoughts lead you down there, it's easy to get in a place where you lose hope, where you lose desire, where you lose joy, where you lose. But as we see with David, he said, when I thought about when I considered life, when I considered its meaning, I drew the conclusion that there is a God who cares for me and it blew his mind. And, and you learn, when you start asking the big questions in life, this is really important to do. You learn where your natural thought tracks lead you down. Are you someone that goes to more that kind of like low, I'm not sure about life? Or are you someone that goes, I just can't believe in all these questions that I can't answer that God cares for me? And it highlights an amazing point. It's that what you and I think about when we think about God will ultimately shape how we think about everything. Let me say that again because I confuse myself. What we think about when we think about God will ultimately shape how we think about everything. And if your thoughts find you thinking about God and understanding the example that Jesus showed us of what God was like, that He is a God who cares for you and He's a God who's interested in you and He is a God who sees you, that will create an incredible frame in which you will then view the world, you will view your future, you will view your potential, you will view the value of your life. And when you pontificate the enormity of life and its meaning and you have those moments where you're wrestling with the big questions, it won't lead you to despair. But if you're thinking of God, and when we talk about God, your thoughts are quick to go, Dunno, I don't know if he's interested in me. And if he is interested in me, he's probably angry at me. And if these are the kind of thoughts that wrestle with your mind and how you relate to God, it's easy for your thoughts to go a radically different direction. And it's this tension right here, what we think about God, whether it's right thinking or wrong thinking, is where the New Testament church, 
was, was so overt and so passionate about bringing clarity to this line of thinking. And we've been looking over the past four weeks, a whole lot of the writings of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, if you're not familiar with kind of biblical history and authorship, he wrote about two thirds of our New Testament. And so whilst we have four gospels, which are kind of like the biographies of Jesus, all the epistles that we have, they were either letters to individuals or letters to communities of people, to churches. They were all trying to outwork what it means to follow Jesus and what Jesus taught and what Jesus showed. And so the Apostle Paul would so often write about the human mind and the human intellect. And he was absolutely convinced that faith in Jesus has a direct impact on how we think in life. And that isn't a radical idea to get our head around because you and I live, we're alive, we breathe. Everything in life can have a radical effect on what you and I think about. But he was convinced that faith in Jesus will help us in our thoughts and will help us in our thinking and it will lead us to somewhere fruitful. And I actually think this is so important. This is such an important conversation for us to have because one of the biggest illnesses and sicknesses and struggles that we have in our modern era is that around our minds. We struggle with our thinking. We struggle with our mind so, so much. So to know that faith in Jesus can provide so much resource and so much hope is good news. Now, we're going to look at one of his passages to the church at Ephesus here. And it's a, it's a, it's a little bit poetic. There's a lot in there. So I want to kind of just frame his argument that he's about to set. He sets like uh, two massive thoughts right from the top about the different ways we can approach the questions of God and our existence and purpose. And he referred to them as this. One was the futility of our thinking. We're about to read this, but I'm just setting it up from the top. One was the futility of our thinking. And the second one was the attitude of our minds. So he sets up the futility of our thinking, the attitudes of our mind, and he pitches them against each other. And so there they are. So ultimately, his argument would be one of these types, the futility of our thinking will lead to a place of hopelessness. The word futility literally means void, empty, no purpose, as if to say there is one line of thought that will lead you to being futile, empty, void, no purpose. And that is a big danger sign. And you don't want to think like that. Trust me. And the other end, he says, is when you're changing the attitude of your mind. And he said, this will lead to a life of values, a life of virtue, a life of passion, a life of hope. So this is how he sets the tension. And this is how he jumps into it. This is in Ephesians chapter four. And he writes this. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Jesus followers. And he says to them, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, and in this word Gentiles referring to non-believers, people who don't have a faith in God, say no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They live in the futility, the emptiness of their thinking. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves, notice how strong these words are. He says they've given themselves over to sensuality. And this word sensuality kind of speaks of sexual expression, but in an, an un like an unbridled, completely um, no boundaries manner. And anyone that's ever experienced anyone who's kind of lived with no boundaries in this area knows how much harm it will cause to their life, how much harm it will cause to people around their life, how much hopelessness it will lead to when people feel like, you know, to, to kind of fill this urgent void inside him, I just got to do it more and 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 more. And more. He's saying, this is what happens. You, they eventually give themselves over to it. They are owned and ruled by lust. He said, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. <laughs> and they are full of greed. And so this is a real big warning. He's saying, hey, when, when you live, when your life is grounded and stooped and buried in the futility of your thinking, he's saying, what ends up happening is it's like the whole 
a reductionism approach where if you just simply just think it through, just think it through and that's it and you break things down to their smallest degree. He says, all you're left with is the base human experience of what we are as just living creatures and you will find yourself just wanting to outwork your natural biological urges, unbridled, unrestrained, undisciplined and will lead to being, he uses the term here, that will, you'll give yourselves over to sensuality, you'll be ruled by it and then you'll have, your life will be full of greed. And he's not, he's not saying, you know, don't experience this. In many ways, what it means to be human is to experience the desires and drive for sensuality and we experience the drive for greed. He's saying the problem is when you've given yourself over to it and when your life is full of it. And in other ways, he's saying this, if our thinking, if our thinking says that we are nothing more than the sum of our parts, then getting more sums will own our hearts. It's a little poem that I wrote for you. If our thinking says that we are nothing more than the sum of our parts, then getting more sums will own our hearts. And this is a danger that every one of us is susceptible to. And Paul says that we're in danger of that when we live in the futility of our thinking. If you're thinking, breaking things down as far as you can understand, as far as you're aware, and you think life is simply about breaking things down to the nth degree and figuring it all out up here. He's saying the danger is you might find yourself going down a path whereby you're like, well, clearly there is nothing more than what I can physically experience and this is all there is. And so I might as well get as much and as much and as much and as much and as much as I can. And if you've asked anyone who needs more, they will know how much is enough and they will tell you just a little bit more. And when that captures your heart, nothing will satisfy you and nothing will make you feel content in life. And you'll always be looking for more. And this is the warning that the Apostle Paul was giving. But luckily, luckily, he gives a solution to this and he shows the other side of the argument. And here's what he says. This is the next verse. He says, that however, this is so cool. He says, that however, it's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. It goes on. He says, you were taught, this is the Jesus way. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Now he talks about this thing of the old self and the new self. This is important to remember. He says, you were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted. Here's this word again, deceitful desires. And to be made new in the attitude of your mind. So where is he suggesting we are made new? In the attitude of your mind. He's saying, so you can put on new clothes. You can get a new job. You can get a new car. You can go to a new uni. You can have a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend. You can trade in your kids for someone else's kids, whatever. He's saying where it really matters. Wow, that was weird. He says, where it really matters is that you would be made new in the attitudes of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God. And so he makes this huge statement by saying this essentially, that our thoughts are the dividing line between the God way of life and our own way of life. Our thoughts are, this is, this is why it's so important we discuss this and, you, and you, take, you take hold of your thoughts. Last week we talked about the idea of bringing every thought captive because we can't control what thoughts come into our mind, but we are responsible for what we do when those thoughts get there. And Paul would say, your thoughts and what you do with them is the dividing line between the God way of life. I'm gonna look at what that looks like in just a second and our old way of life, a life that leads to nothing but unbridled sensuality and a life that is full of greed. Big thought, right? That it's our thoughts. One of my most 
uh, I was about to say fondest memories. It was not the fondest memories, just a very, very clear memory. Happened when I was in high school and I used to play representative basketball. And one year, when I was in year 11, 16 years of age, uh, our team was placed in the top division in Southeast Queensland. So we were like, we couldn't believe it. We're in Division A. We didn't belong there, but there we were. And we won our first game. We couldn't believe it. We won our second game. We're like 2-0. and oh. We're like, this is great. And so game number three, we had to uh, travel down to Brisbane and we had to play against the most feared team in all of Southeast Queensland. They know as dun, da, 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 the Spartans. How's that for an intimidating name? And if you've ever seen the Mighty Ducks before, their uniforms were all black. Right, so we were already freaking out, but we we're like, no, 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 we're two and zero. We're the boys from Richardor. You know, we're going to do this, and so um, we're all pumped before the game because we we're just we we're just confident. We we're stoked we we're in Div A, but here we were also like winning games. We couldn't believe it. And so um, you're in your two different dressing rooms, and the teams first see each other when they walk out of the dressing rooms side by side onto the court. And as we did that, we walked out of the dressing rooms really excited, and then as we joined next to them walking onto the court, all of our heads went like this. And we instantly lost right then and there. Their shortest player was as tall as our tallest player. And if you know anything about basketball, that is bad news for the short guys, right? There is no advantage there whatsoever. Speaking of basketball, shout out to the Boomers who beat Team USA for the first time ever in basketball yesterday. I don't know. Yeah. If you're watching Australian professional basketball players online, I don't know. Okay. Just very exciting for someone that has always seen them lose forever and ever. So, so, but this was our moment. We walked into the court and we were like, our hearts sunk. And in our minds, instantly, we were convinced we have lost. But luckily, we had a coach. And in that moment, he could see that we were already defeated in our minds. And you've probably been there before, you've experienced it. Maybe you're a parent here and you've coached your kid's team and you see it in their eyes. We were dripping with tears with those, that, that kind of mindset, right? We had lost. And so luckily, our coach sat us down. And the words he said to us next have stuck with me forever. He goes, guys... He goes, I can see it in your eyes that you've already lost in your minds, right? He goes, there's a story in the Old Testament about David. And he fought Goliath. Goliath was bigger. Goliath was stronger. David was young, inexperienced, shorter. But it's not about the size of the dog in the fight. It's about the size of the fight and the dog. It's how much courage he had. And we might not be as tall as them, but man, we are tougher than them. We are more stronger than them. We are a team. We are a unit. And we are going to bring this game to them. I wish that's what he said. He did not say that whatsoever. This is literally what the coach said to us. No point playing this game. You guys have already lost. Waste of your time. Waste of my time. We might as well go home right now. Thanks, mate. Great coaching right there, right? But he, he nailed something right there because he did see that as far as our thoughts were concerned, we had already lost. What we needed in that moment, what we needed was to be reminded or to be taught rather to be shown and to be encouraged towards certain kind of virtues that were going to cause us to live bigger than our base experience, the things that we couldn't change, our biology, right? I'd love to have gotten taller. I've been asking God ever since I was 11, but he's done nothing about that. So, so what we needed there was to be inspired and led towards certain virtues that would cause us to live bigger than we really were. He gave us nothing. But lucky for you and I, the Apostle Paul does not make that mistake. He actually gives us then in this moment of setting the divide between your God way of life and your old way of life and how our thoughts are the divide between the two. He then lists this huge list of Christian virtues. And this is amazing. So I won't go through the whole list right now, but they are like the classics, right? They're the kind of virtues, they're the kind of Christian characteristics that 
like the you know everyone knows about it. Maybe you're someone who's not a normal church person, wouldn't consider yourself necessarily Christian, but you like you know how Christians are supposed to behave, right? And so the kind of the virtues that parents like you know you've made the mistake of telling your neighbor that you're Christian, but then your neighbor meets your kids, and the neighbor goes, "I thought you guys were Christians," you know, it's that kind of thing. No one laughed at that. Not funny. Too real. Okay, so so. So this is a list, things like, and I'll paraphrase it, but this is genuinely what he was saying, like things like, you know, don't swear and don't be rude to your parents, quite literally. Get a job. Don't be lazy. Um, don't laugh at dirty jokes. Don't pull people down. Like I'm talking like the basic stuff to go. That's like basic Christian stuff, okay? And he concludes the whole list, the whole list in verse 32 by saying this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, here's the thing. This whole list of virtues that I kind of just ran over really quickly. For the Christian, for the Jesus follower, right from the beginning, the Apostle Paul was writing this saying, for us, it's not a random list of behaviors to follow. For the Christian, it's we are simply following the example that God has set through Jesus Christ. We're following an example. We didn't just randomly go, that seems like a Christian thing to do. Mm, That's not, but that one is. We'll pick that one and that one. No, no. It's like, this is the example that has been set from Jesus. And so this has kind of shaped what it means to live like a Christian, what we'd call Christian characteristics or Christian virtues. The tension is, is that many atheists, and maybe you consider yourself there or somewhere around there before, maybe you've got a friend like that before, and will look at Christian virtues and they will make the argument and say, well, you can't claim them as uniquely Christian virtues. They're just virtues. You don't need to be a Christian to do them. You don't need to be someone who believes in a higher power to just be nice to someone. And you know what? They're right. At least they're right in the modern age. The thing was, when this was originally written and when these lists of virtues were listed as virtues, as much as anyone could do them, they actually weren't originally virtues. They give an example. To be compassionate to one another, to someone, to a weaker person, wasn't seen as a virtue, wasn't seen as something to aspire to in the ancient Roman world. It was seen as a weakness. In an empire that had like one in three of their, the population were slaves and it was a hierarchical structure, um, to be seen as kind was not seen as a virtue, it was seen as weakness. To be seen as generous was not seen as a virtue, it was seen as weakness. It's like if you're being generous, you're going to lose what you got and nothing's guaranteed. So, so all of a sudden, though, the Jesus way comes along and starts showing these things like kindness, forgiveness, compassion, not pulling people down. Stop looking at porn. Literally, there was the old school 2,000 years ago. They were saying, it's not good for you, right? It started because of the Jesus way of life. It introduced a radically new way of looking at the world. So as much as atheists would be right to say, look, they're not even Christian virtues. They're just virtues. Originally, though, what made them virtues was the way of Jesus. What stood out to me about this was uh, an account I heard recently from a guy who was explaining about his neighbor who had a huge property. I know some of you might live on a property. And his driveway that he had winding up on on where they lived was lined with all these pine trees, massive, massive pine trees with beautiful big branches. And uh, the owner of the property, though, hated the fact that often these branches would grow out of control and um, would get too large and it just looked all really uh, messy kind of in his drive up to his house. So he wanted to kind of trim them back, make it all nice and, and neat. So he called a tree lopping company to ask if they can quote what it would cost to kind of trim back all the, all the branches on these, these massive pine trees up his driveway. 
So the company comes out, they quote, they quote the, the job and they said, mate, it's going to cost around $5,000 just to trim the, tri- the, you know, the branches off your trees. And the guy was like, 5000 bucks, flag that. I'm not doing that because I'm going to do it myself and then I'll invite you back later. So for the next several months, every weekend, the guy brought out his old rickety ladder and his home chainsaw and he went up as high as he could just and chopping down whatever branches he could reach, right? As high as he could go. You see where this is going, don't you? At least you think you do. And he's chopping down, chopping down. After several months of doing this off the sweat of his own back, he'd finally done as many as he could, as high as he could go. And he's like, great, I've kind of broken the back of most of this. Now I'm going to call the company again and they can finish off the really, really high ones and uh, hopefully it'll be a lot cheaper. So he calls up the company. He's like, hey guys, I want you to come back, check out my driveway and give me another quote again. He's like, yeah, this is going to be cheap. And they go, mate, when they come and check it out, they said, mate, sorry, it's actually going to pretty much be double the cost now. He's like, double the cost? Why? And he's like, well, we were, our plan was we're going to use those lower branches to stand on to cut down the top ones, but you've chopped them all off. Now we have to get in a cherry picker to get up to the high branches now. And he's like, well, fantastic, right? But it highlights the same tension that we experience now in our modern world, particularly in the modern West, where many social commentators will argue that if we remove the foundation upon which all these Christian virtues are built, if we remove Christ out of these virtues, then the virtues themselves won't last long, the modern world, as they don't have a footing to stand on. And all of those Christian virtues will be too lofty and too high to reach without Jesus as the rock to stand on. And one of the the old statements or the old sayings around this idea is don't remove a fence until you know why it was put there in the first place. And that's just good advice if you got like you just moved into a house recently. Don't just don't move it, right? But when it comes to the big questions of life, and we, we're asking about meaning and we're asking about purpose, and why do I have to be generous? Like I can understand why I get angry, I can understand why I want to be violent, I can understand why I want to be lustful, but why generous? Why forgiving? Why kind? Why compassionate? Because if you do take the author of those things out of it. You don't have a branch to stand on to reach those lofty ideals. But luckily for the Christian, it's not simply a bunch of teachings that we have to wrap our heads around. And Christianity was never simply teachings for us to think on and ponder on. It was so much more than that. And the Apostle Paul concludes this whole letter by, by this. This is in chapter 5, verse 1. And he addresses this saying, Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and here's the kicker, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's an example to follow. This isn't just teachings to wrap our heads around and just teachings to consider and just teachings to ponder. Christianity is as much about an example to follow as it is teachings to obey. And when we wrestle with the big questions of life and the big questions of our existence and the big questions of faith and the big questions of who we are, and we try and think, do I just have to try and think and understand? And I don't always understand everything that was taught and I don't understand. I can't get my mind around everything. This is like some big questions. Well, luckily for the follower of Jesus, it's not just teachings for you to wrap your head around. You have an example to follow. And Jesus never, ever separated his teachings from his life and from his example. In fact, Jesus' life, how Jesus lived and what he did is what authenticated his teachings. It was the fact that Jesus was willing to lay down his life as an innocent man and then ultimately was resurrected that authenticated and proved that what he taught was what he said, truth. 
Because any person can come and say anything they want and say, follow my teaching, follow my teaching, follow my teaching. Jesus didn't simply say, follow my teaching. He said, follow me. And I'll prove this by giving my life for you. And the Apostle Paul sums up this way to follow, this path to follow. By this term, he said, it's called the way of love. He said, the example you and I have to follow is the way of love. And in all the things we've discussed in this series, and we've talked about bringing every thought captive, we're talking about reno- doing a renovation on our thinking. We've addressed so many things in there. And maybe you're not in a place in your life right now where you're wrestling with too many existential and massive big ideas, but maybe you will one day. Or maybe you're going through something right now that's causing you to wrestle with some of life's really big and tough questions. The Apostle Paul would say this, when you don't always understand it, there's at least a path to walk in, and it's called the way of love. And when you're thinking and the answers you're looking for and the tensions you're feeling in life are not leading you somewhere that you find are helpful and your brain is not doing what you hoped it would do, don't fret because there's a way that you can walk in. It's the way of love. And I remember when I was in university and I was first uh, really wrestling with some of the big questions and I remember some of the classes I was in, my faith was so genuinely challenged and I was wrestling with some big ideas and big thoughts and a whole lot of stuff that I felt really confident and thought I had an understanding about was just thrown out the window and maybe some of you are in that place right now in your life and so I was wrestling with all the stuff I didn't understand and one of my mentors said something to me that has stuck with me forever he said Jono when you go through something that you don't understand that is the moment where you hang on to what you do understand maybe you're going through something right now that you don't understand well, this is the moment for you to hang on to what you do understand and take your cue from the song that King David wrote in Psalm 8. He said, when I consider the works of your heaven and the stars and the planets and the galaxies and the moons and the atoms and the bacteria and the small and the big and the large. He said, I can't understand all that. But what I do understand and what I love is that God, you're mindful of me. God, I don't understand my place in the whole world and I don't understand all the things about good and evil and justice and why suffering happens and why good things happen to bad people. Like this huge, big question. I don't understand it all. I don't understand it. What I do understand is that you care for people because you showed it through your life being given for us on a cross and then through your resurrection. All of that to say this, when you find yourself in a place in life where your thoughts have led you to a dead end. And that dead end could maybe bring in thoughts and ideas of doubt in you. Here's my encouragement to you. When in doubt, walk it out. When you don't know what to think, walk in the way of love. When you don't know the right answers to say, do what Jesus did. Maybe you're in a tension in your marriage right now and you're trying to think it through and you're trying to rationalize it through and you're in doubt now. Your brain just can't comprehend what's going on the safest thing to do is walk in the way of love maybe you've got a tension with your kid right now maybe your kid's wrestling with drugs or maybe they're wrestling with tension at home and you're in doubt about what to do next when in doubt walk it out walk in the way of love when you don't understand the how exactly god thinks about a certain issue and you're wrestling with a major decision or a social conundrum and your your mind's going everywhere and you're hearing opinions from everywhere when you're in doubt walk it out walk in the way of love. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. Um, When it comes to 
human motivation and wrestling with the why. We understand so much about the how. The reductionist approach always deals with the how. But the why in life, this is massive. And with elite athletes and professional sports people, trying to keep motivation is a really big deal. And particularly when it comes to endurance sports, because people who give themselves to endurance sports are like permanently in pain. They are permanently suffering. You've got to imagine there's something quite not mentally 100% going on upstairs that they want to continually throw themselves into a situation whereby they're willingly suffering over days and days and days, right? So people who compete at an elite level, they wrestle often with motivation and the drive to want to keep doing it and all the sacrifices that are necessary, all the commitment that's necessary, rocking up every week and training and training and running and running and working and working. And so psychologists and sports psychologists work really hard to try and find how do you keep someone's why alive? How do you keep the why? Why I'm doing it? Why I'm here? Why I'm sacrificing? How do you keep it alive? And the most foolproof way that works time and time again with elite athletes to keep their motivation high if they would tell them this, a psychologist would tell them, stop thinking about yourself for a moment and go and leverage all of your experience. Go and leverage all of your lessons learned. Go and leverage all your passion and pour it into someone else's life who needs it. Begin to inspire someone else. Begin to bless someone else. Be generous with your time for someone else. And what will happen is they begin to sow into someone else's life. It will start to refire again their original why. It'll start to re-inspire them. Why they signed up for this in the first place. And maybe in your life, if you've been found in a place of doubt, maybe you're doubting your own faith. Maybe you're doubting God. Maybe you're doubting God's love for you. When in doubt, just walk the Jesus way out. Begin to love someone like you've been loved by God. God. Begin to just follow Jesus' example and be kind to people, be compassionate to people, be generous to people, and you will find your why isn't something that you can deduce through your own thinking and through breaking things down to the sum of their parts because the true value of your life is so much more than the things that can be counted about you. Your true value and true worth is in who you belong to, and your Heavenly Father loves your life, and He is offering you a path or a way of love to walk in. So my friends, as we land this, Four weeks of teaching about this. My encouragement to you is when you're next in doubt and when next your thoughts fail you, walk in the way of love. Walk it out. Heavenly Father, tonight I'm so grateful that you walked in our shoes and you carried our burdens, you carried our sorrows, you've carried our sickness. You know our story, you know our journeys. Man, it's David said when he just, considered the enormity of life. He was just overwhelmed with your care for us. And tonight, we are overwhelmed that you care for us. I pray tonight for people that maybe they are in a place of doubt or their thoughts have brought them to a dead-end street and they are really wrestling with some major thoughts and some major strife in their minds. I am praying that in the middle of that, Holy Spirit, you'd reveal Jesus. You'd reveal His grace and His life and His hope to every heart and every person tonight. Lord, I'm particularly mindful of those whose minds are real troubled and people that have been struggling with uh, really dark thoughts and, and thoughts that could potentially lead somewhere unhealthy in their life. I'm praying tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would shower them with the love of their Heavenly Father, that you would speak right into the middle of their minds where there's wrong thinking or wrong belief, and you would show them just how valued, how loved, and how precious they are, that in the middle of of 8 billion people, you're mindful of them. I feel for some people tonight, you need to know that for you. Maybe your thoughts have led you to thinking that you are not worth much and you aren't seen. Your Heavenly Father wants you to know that He sees you and that He cares for you. And God, I pray this and I thank you for this in the name of
of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.